Alex was a parrot. Alex, what toy? Nail. Nail, that's right. You're a good birdie. How many? And arguably the most famous bird in the world. Two. Good parrot. Good boy. One, two. Alex the parrot was this famous, well, he was a parrot, who in many ways was just as famous as Coco. This is the story of his owner, Dr. Irene Pepperberg. You be good. You be good. A rebel scientist whose amazing relationship with Alex showed that parrots were not only smart, but their mental skills could actually rival young children. I love you. Love you too. Bye. I know they can talk, and they're smart. Good boy. Irene Pepperberg spent 30 years teaching Alex to communicate. And to this day, Hello. Hi. Her work with Alex is very well regarded. Yes, I gotcha. How are you? I'm hanging in. (laughs) But before Alex became Alex the Parrot, in the spring of 1980, Irene is fresh out of grad school, working as a research associate. Well, all right. So here I am. I have been working for just about three years, just getting work together. Barely anyone knows about her research yet. I was a super junior nobody at that point. And one day, she hears about this conference. There was going to be this conference in New York on the animal language studies. Several of the people who were basically the ones who started the field were going to be there. The conference is hosted by the New York Academy of Sciences. It's very prestigious. It was not like it was, you know, some little seminar thingy at some, you know, university in Nowheresville. A lot of heavy hitters in animal language research are supposed to be there, including Herb Terrace, who led the NIM project. But Irene also notices that there's something strange about the lineup. This is kind of very odd. The amazing Randy was going to be there, and he's you know known for debunking fake science. Amazing Randy was this famous magician who was known for debunking psychic abilities and pseudoscience. I should have realized that there was something that was not going to be positive about this conference. So Irene arrives at the conference. It's at the Roosevelt Hotel in Midtown. Scientists are rubbing elbows. There's lots of media there, too. Reporters from The New Yorker and the journal Science. There was a lunch break, and I went out to get a sandwich somewhere, and I bumped into David Premack on the street of New York City. He's a prominent psychologist who, she learns, skipped the conference entirely. You know, stopped him on the street and I said, David, why aren't you there? And he said, it's a witch hunt. Basically, as the day went on, things got more and more heated and more and more ugly. I am horrified. I am horrified because this was not a scientific debate. Various speakers take the stage. Experts on lying, self-deception, self-fulfilling prophecies. Herbert Terrace speaks. Not long before this conference, he'd published his study discrediting other ape-language researchers' work. And then, the closing act of the conference. The amazing Randy. I mean, I sat there kind of with my jaw dropping open. Even Randy took a swipe at the ape-language field saying he thought it was all fraud. So wait, was this a conference designed to just call all of these scientists charlatans? Yes. 
it was a witch hunt. All the newspaper reporters were there, and they were having a field day writing all this up. This is how The New Yorker sums up the chaos. Quote, Can scientists speak to apes? Can apes speak to other apes? Can scientists speak to other scientists? In our opinion, the jury is still out on all three questions. I'm Ariel Zumros, and this is a show about animals. What Nim did in terms of using signs to get reward was the equivalent of operating a vending machine. By 1980, Herb Terrace is promoting his book on Nim, doing interviews and talking about how he and others in the ape language field, like Penny Patterson, had fallen prey to seeing what they want to see. That whatever level of response they're getting from their ape subjects is, in his perspective, the result of prompting. Not a true exchange, not human communication and conversation. He would have been much happier if he could just go and press a button and get an apple as opposed to going through through all these machinations of signing to get an apple. What Terrace could very effectively point out is that Patterson had sort of like the scientific objectivity of like a medieval peasant. Robert Sapolsky, the neuroscientist and primatologist who worked with Nim Chimsky. And just skewered her in that regard. Herb Terrace says Penny Patterson is interpreting all kinds of things when Coco signs that Coco doesn't mean that Penny is projecting onto Coco what she thinks a human child would do. The implication is that Penny is too close to be able to analyze the situation clearly. I asked Penny about this, how she handled those criticisms from Herb and others. She made it seem like they didn't really affect her. How did you handle those criticisms? Oh, I don't know. I think... My dad encouraged me to write something um, for one of the uh, the articles. I wrote a little something. I, I just didn't feel it was necessary. It just seemed like, just look at what we're doing and you'll know the answer. You'll know what's real. But there's this letter she published in the New York Review of Books, and she really does seem to be trying to salvage her reputation and the ape language field as a whole. She writes in the letter that she decided to review Herb Terrace's study of Nim, and she looked at the tapes that he put out. And I looked at them. I hate to say this. It looked like Nim knew more than, than the uh, caregivers, that they weren't understanding him when he signed, and he was signing pretty clearly. Penny also says that in the videos, she sees this huge rotating cast of caregivers for Nim Chimsky. Apparently there were hundreds of different people floating through there, over the duration of the project, and that's stressful for a young ape or human. It's true that there were dozens of people who worked on the project during its four years. But the co-author of the NIM study, Lauren Petito, says that all these people weren't all part of the core group working with NIM, that he did have a stable, smaller group that taught him for a long time, people like herself. But Penny's main critique is that Herb's team taught Nim in, quote, artificial and high-pressure conditions, and that because of that, 
trainers couldn't get the most out of Nim, unlike her work with Coco. What Patterson was able to appropriately point out is that, like, Terrace was this, like, cold fish, loveless creature who could take any human child on Earth and make them incapable of, like, acquiring language because he would never hold them and love them the way I do with Coco and back and forth. If you're going to speak or sign with a gorilla or a chimp, it should be in a setting that's humane and appropriate for their species. Penny's approach, as we've covered, was more familial. She related to Coco as if she was her daughter. Did you ever feel like a father figure for Nim? No. No. I mean, having had two kids of my own is totally different. I tried to deal with Nim as objectively as I could. I cared about him a lot. Um, I, I loved being with him. But he was not like a child. There was no way that any individual could have learned to communicate using the system he was using. Irene Pepperberg, who trained Alex the Parrot, takes Penny's point that teaching something to an animal takes a personal touch. That it does require an interpersonal relationship between a human handler and an animal subject. So the fact that he failed had a lot more to do with his failure than the failure of the ape. And if the ape couldn't learn in his lab, no ape could learn in any lab. And that was, you know, pretty bogus. Even Herb Terrace publicly agreed back in 1979 that an ape's ability to learn language suffers when there's a lot of staff turnover. And he thought that out of all of the ape experiments, Coco and Penny probably have the closest relationship because of how long they've been together. But he would argue that despite Penny's closeness to Coco, that she likely is not seeing Coco's abilities clearly. And based on that assessment, he warns the entire ape language field that if they want to go forward with their work, they need to institute rigorous rules to make sure that they aren't reaching self-fulfilling conclusions. Herb's conclusion had a huge impact on a bunch of different studies that were going on at the time. Basically, the whole field cratered. The granting agencies completely pulled out any of their support. Irene says that after the conference, the National Science Foundation cut funding to animal language studies, including hers. Because they felt that if the main people involved were calling each other charlatans, they didn't want anything to do with it. I mean, people lost their jobs because of this. People lost their research projects because of this. I mean, it was a complete, absolute, utter nightmare. Penny, for her part, never actually got funding from the National Science Foundation or the NIH. But the shift was a sign of the times. And she was gearing up for her next move. If scientists didn't want to see what was right in front of them, she'd turn to a more receptive audience. It was just sort of world-changing for these folks, and they were having trouble adjusting. I mean, haters gonna hate, right? But Penny? She was going to keep doing her thing, no matter what. It never seemed odd to me, because it's exactly what I felt 
I wanted to do, and now, in retrospect, it needed to be done. That's after the break. So after the whole debunking conference of 1980, a lot of the researchers are strapped for cash. But Penny, she's got these two gorillas that she needs to take care of. And if she wants to keep doing that, she's got to hustle. So she starts a membership program to fund the Gorilla Foundation, asking regular people to contribute what they can to help. And she turns to an audience that has never failed to appreciate the idea of a talking gorilla. Kids. I have feelings. Now here are two friends who understand each other so well, they hardly need to say a single word. I have a question. Let's talk about how you feel today. I'm hungry, Lips. Hungry. Oh, you feel hungry. It's clear that even animals that can't talk to us have feelings, but Coco's very special in that she can tell us about her feelings. In other words, we can ask her, Coco, how do you feel today? And sometimes she'll say, fine. She's like, we might, just to be polite. By this point, Coco was already fairly well-known because of the media coverage she was receiving. But then Penny Patterson publishes a book, a children's book, called Coco's Kitten. And Coco becomes a household name. The book isn't about the sign language experiment. There's no data, no graphs or charts. It's a cheerful and at times emotional romp about Coco and her kitten friend, All Ball. Coco loved All Ball and treated her gently. She handled the tiny kitten as if it were her own baby. They were very close friends. The book features these glossy, full-page pictures of Coco lying on her back, gently cradling this little gray kitten with her feet. Coco's kitten is a hit. The reason that it's so, it stands out in people's memories is because there's a giant gorilla with a tiny, tiny, tiny helpless kitten and being gentle and loving toward that kitten. There are also videos of Coco and All Ball spending time together in the 1999 documentary, A Conversation with Coco. It is very soothing to watch. I might be projecting, but the kitten seems sort of content. And Coco is enthralled. Coco adored All Ball, and they spent countless hours playing together. Scholastic took up the cause and published that book and that was incredibly important in helping to shape a generation with an understanding and acceptance of how we and gorillas are like. And it's All Ball and Coco's friendship that really helps bring Coco to this whole new level of fame. Coco got more popular, people joined the Gorilla Foundation, this became a source of income, really. That was her job. And Southcombe, who worked with Coco in the early days. And so since science wasn't interested in it anymore, then I think that transitioned mm. into, well, Coco is going to talk for gorillas. You know, she, she's the only talking gorilla. She can tell everybody about gorillas. I cannot tell you how many people have told me that they grew up reading Coco's Kitten. It feels like the picture of Coco and All Ball on the cover of National Geographic and then on this book, that's what got a lot of people my age 
kids of the 80s and early 90s, into Coco. Children really got attached. And I don't know how long it's been since you've read Coco's Kitten. But, spoiler alert, at the end, all ball dies. One evening, all ball was tragically killed on a nearby logging road. I went in right away and I said, Coco, something's happened to your kitty and he won't be here anymore. You know, he's, he's, the the cat has died. There's this video in the episode of Reading Rainbow where Coco is featured, in which Penny asks Coco how she felt about All Ball's death. When All Ball died, Coco's heart was broken. Remember when Ball died? How did you feel? Coco signs, sorry. Sorry. And love. Coco, love. Good. Then Coco pulls Penny in for a kiss. Were you sad? Sweat frown lips, bad. Frown. Oh, sad. Okay, this video is very cute. And I love that Penny and Coco are teaching kids about grief and about talking about feelings. Also, there's this thing I can't stop thinking about that I really only noticed upon watching it for, like, mm, the fifth time, which is that Penny literally asks... Were you sad before it seems like Coco signs anything that has to do with sadness? Were you sad? Flat frown lips, bad frown, oh, sad. It's almost like Coco knows that when Penny says the word sad, she needs to respond with words like frown and bad. If I was Herb Terrace, I'd be doing a victory dance while watching this video. But here's the thing. This video isn't for scientists, it's for the kids. So it's probably not at all fair to judge Coco's understanding of Penny's question based on this one short clip. This isn't how you judge if an ape understands language. But this is how Penny chooses to present Coco's signing to the world. These are the clips that we have, which means that this is the data we can sift through. We asked the Gorilla Foundation when they plan to release more data and videos about Coco. And they told me that they're actively working on that, and they plan to release a bunch of things next year. So, we'll see, right? Here comes Coco. She's looking fine. When she wants a banana, she makes the sign. With all this publicity comes more donations and more publicity. And soon, it's the parents watching because their favorite celebrities are also hanging out with a gorilla. So I got into the cage (laughs) as a publicity stunt, okay? There's a young gorilla in the back room over there behind bars shaking it because he's jealous of me. He has seen Star Trek. William Shatner, Sting, Leonardo DiCaprio, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Betty White from the Golden Girls, anyone and everyone who has an interest in raising awareness for gorillas. There aren't too many gorillas. Betty White even joins the Gorilla Foundation's board. To look into the eyes of a 300-pound gorilla and have her tell you what she's thinking is truly humbling. I like to remember what Coco said about my cufflinks. Cufflinks are like fancy buttons. You can see what mine look like. What? That? She's asking you about your cufflink. Is that a flower? That's a sun. My grandfather gave me that. That's a sun. It looks like a flower, though. It does look like a flower. Can we talk 
can we talk a little bit about love? Love you, she oh, said. Oh. Love you, visit love. Oh. Well, that was very nice. Thank you, Coco. She loves her visitor. Well, I love visiting with you. But the celebrity meeting that everyone remembers happens in 2001. There is only one animal who can tell you if she is happy and wants to mate. That is Coco, the silverback gorilla. And she saw me, the blue-eyed simian. She was intrigued. She reaches out and grabs both my nipples. And when an 800-pound gorilla's got you by the tits, you listen. So this really did happen. But the real event was a lot more emotional than Robin Williams made it seem in his stand-up. Hi, this is Robin Williams. I recently had a mind-altering experience communicating with a gorilla. Her name is Coco. In a video captured of the meeting, Robin Williams is sitting on the floor of the trailer with Coco. There's some stock world music in the background. Coco understands spoken English and uses over a thousand signs to share her feelings and thoughts about daily events. Life, love, even death. It was awesome and unforgettable. They're sitting close. Robin Williams is concentrating on Coco's face, on her eyes, watching her intently. Coco reaches out for his face, and she takes his glasses off. Gently. She puts them on, but they don't really fit her giant head. Robin seems delighted, and basically says so after their meeting. She had my sunglasses on. Turned away, and then she looked out the window, and she looked great. They actually looked very nice. <laughs> then Coco points to her armpit. Tickle. Tickle, Penny tickle. says. She wants you to tickle her. She yep, wants you to tickle her. Later, Coco pulls up his shirt and seems to pinch his nipples. She also goes through his pants pockets and pulls out his wallet. But it's not funny, really. It's more like a communion. Robin is reverent. It gives me the chills every time I watch it. The public went wild for this moment. They loved it. The laughter ended today, replaced by tears. To some, he was the funniest man alive. People around the world are reacting tonight to the terrible news. Comedian Robin Williams has died. Thirteen years later, Robin Williams dies. Poco has been really somber and low-key. She's needing a lot of um, support. According to Penny, Coco takes the news pretty hard. The Gorilla Foundation releases this photo of Coco. She's sitting slouched with her lip drooping. The foundation says she's somber and remembering Robin Williams. After Robin passed away, we had a Mark and Mindy series that had multiple CDs in it. And she picked the one where Mark can bring another person back to life. I don't know how she knew it was on that CD, but she expressed through that choice that she understood what happened to Robin. The Gorilla Foundation also posts an official tribute video to Robin Williams, which as of today has almost 19 million views. 
I was there when Robin Williams passed away. Lisa Holiday was Penny's personal assistant and also worked with Coco. Penny was sad about Robin. I'm, I'm for sure, definitely sure of that. But as far as Coco's mourning of Robin Williams? I feel like a lot of that was fabricated. The picture that they showed that went viral and was in all the newspapers was the way that Coco sat every night when she was tired. She would sit in that position and she would get lip droop. It's very common with gorillas. I do not think it was necessarily about Robin Williams. That's what she did at that time of day. The Gorilla Foundation says that Coco was grieving and that they used that photo because it was, quote, representative of the emotions she experienced following her friend's death. So why tell that story about Robin Williams and his death? Like, where do you think that comes from for Penny? Publicity. It brought attention back to the Gorilla Foundation. Donations would raise. They, they, that Robin Williams picture with her brought in a lot of money when he visited, for one. And then when the story broke, they could use that in a lot more appeals and get more money in. You know, it's they had to feed the beast. But I did really struggle with benefiting in any way off of someone's death. I didn't like that at all. Next week, I speak to Lisa and others who worked at the Gorilla Foundation. You know, when I was a kid, hearing this and learning this, like everyone else, I was completely infatuated with it. I'm like, oh my God, here's this beautiful woman. She has her own gorilla. I mean, geez, what, what's not to like about that? But that was before um, I started to question what was really going on. A Show About Animals is a production of Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Ariel Zumros. Our producers are Julia Nutter and Pete Lang Stanton. Our production assistant is Laili Rizvani. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandy, with additional support by Steve Bone. Annie Aviles is our executive editor. Kate Osborne is our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson for fact-checking. A show about animals returns next week. If you like what you hear, please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And if you can't do that, hit subscribe. That helps too.